You are Locked On Indians, your daily Cleveland Indians podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hello, everyone. It's Jeff Ellis. Uh, on today's show, we're going to talk about the 1991 season. That was John Hart's first as general manager of the Indians. Uh, it's not. It's a rough, rough road when you look at the trades that occurred that year uh, at the start of the year. Uh, at the end of the year, they managed to make one trade that makes up for all of the bad trades. But Hart entered that season in an uh, unenviable position where Greg Swindell and Greg Swindell was two years from free agency. Tom Cadiotti was going to be a free agent at the end of the year. And it's hard to look past those players because, you know, those core 90s teams, what did they need pitching? What did the early 90s teams actually have pitching? Uh, some trades are made. We're going to go into detail on those trades. Before I do that, uh, I was looking into some of these trades that happened, and it sent me down a wormhole. I have to comment on the fact that you know, Tim Belcher was traded to the Reds not long after the Reds acquired Greg Swindell in their offseason deal. Uh, it was Eric Davis and Kip Gross for Tim Belcher, and I can't remember the other piece. How crazy is it? Tim Belcher was the first overall pick in the 1983 draft, and this ties to Ohio because he was a Mount Vernon can- kid. Uh, he went to Mount Vernon uh, Nazarene University. Uh, he went to Highland High School in Sparta, which just had a really good pitcher last year for the baseball draft. Now, Mount Vernon Nazarene University, I'm not sure if it still has baseball. It has not had a player drafted since 2004. It has had one other major leaguer. And in 1983, it had the first overall pick in the draft who refused to sign with the Twins. Uh, I don't know what that situation was, but this isn't back when you get a comp pick. The Twins just lost out. Uh, relative to that draft, not the biggest uh, lose losing out. Uh, if you count Belcher, there are only three players in that draft who would accrue a career baseball reference war over 10. Dan Plesak, Tim Belcher, and Roger Clemens. So, yeah, not a great first round. And then I was jumping ahead to look, well, did they do any type of compensation for them in 1984? And not that I could see... But then I had to comment on the fact, so in 83, you get small university in Ohio, um, uh, Mount Ove, Nazarene. How about that? you come back in 1984 and in the first round, you know, D3, I believe, maybe D2 for baseball, Marietta College in Marietta, Ohio has a first round pick with Terry Mulholland, who uh, also goes on to have, you know, a, a pretty successful career. Uh, he gets drafted out of there with the 24th overall pick. You had a Cincinnati kid going, um, where is that, from Purcell, Marion, Drew, Dennison went uh, 19th overall. It's kind of crazy how in the 80s, <laughs> how much better regional baseball was. Um, we had There were more players chosen in that time, it feels like, in Ohio than were chosen in the 90s. Or Let's put it this way, at least. You know, the 90s had some good points. But I think the 80s, there were more players selected than there have been in all of the 2000s from uh, Ohio colleges and universities early. Uh, Marietta had one other guy make it to the majors, Dwayne Thesis, and uh, they, were, they had two players drafted in 2012. Uh, they had one player, actually to the Indians, Michael Eisenberg, in 2006, and those are the only players they've had drafted in the aughts. Um, so, again, not the Eisenberg made it, uh, made it up to Lake County. That was as high as it got for the pitcher. Eighth round pick, respectable. But uh, I just had to point out, doing the research, I thought it was interesting because 
Like I said, that's 83 and 84. You got a pair of uh, small schoolers from Ohio. And then, you know, we already talked about 86, 87, 88, the first uh, prep player in each of those classes from Ohio. Uh, it's, it's so basically, it's like, what, let's see if we have any Ohioans in 85. Like, that would be, do we, oh, I just lost my internet connection. Luckily, I don't need an internet connection to record, and it's back up. Let's see if we had any Ohioans in the 85 first round to try to connect these all together. Oh, no, it looks like we don't, sadly. 85 draft, Ohio did not make a big imprint on that first round. That was an awesome year to have a top 10 pick. Uh, 85 draft, just in and of itself, is an awesome, awesome draft and something uh, we'll have to talk about in detail at some point down the road because, uh, again, it's a, a killer draft. That's best way to put it in the first round. Uh, oh, it's not going to make this easy for me, was it? It's so fun for someone to silently count. More than 10 players have wars over 10. Multiple Hall of Fame level talents. The Indians are picking ninth in that class. Uh, so they had to do well. Um, no, they took one of the few guys who didn't make it to the majors. Mike Pohl, if you are of an age to even remember that name. Uh, yeah, not not so good. Uh, if you're curious about Mike Pohl, as I am now, University of Texas Austin pitcher who did get up to double A and actually was not, well, he couldn't miss bats to save his life. Never high innings, but yeah. So let's get into 1991. We've had enough of my little fun with drafts of the past. So the 1991 season, it's not just about those two uh, big name pitchers. And kind of a fun fact, I was going through the uh, Baseball America's top rated 1991 prospects. And when you look at that group, the Indians had the number eighth overall prospect, or the number ninth overall prospect. They would in season acquire the number eight and the number twenty-five overall prospects. They also had the number seventeenth overall prospect. Um, if I just sort by name, you know, organizational name, let's put it that way. Uh, entering the ninety-one season, this is just something I put on Twitter. Uh, Jim Tomey was not even the highest-ranked third baseman from Iowa in the Indian system. Uh, he was behind Tim, uh, or the highest-ranked uh, Iowan in system. He was ranked behind Tim Costo, who the Indians had drafted out of the University of Iowa, the eighth overall pick um, in nineteen ninety. Uh, that did not work out. Mark Lewis is the shortstop who was ranked ninth overall. Reggie Jefferson is the player. They would acquire in a trade who was ranked eighth overall and was a Jefferson for cost, uh, Costo deal. Uh, Jim Tomey was ranked 93rd, Charles Nagy 56th for the Indians heading into that season to kind of give you an idea of uh, how things looked. So the they get into the season and an underrated trade that occurs is the Indians acquire a Grady Hall who's nothing. Yeah, he, he's a guy who doesn't I mean every human being has value but in baseball terms Grady Hall did not really have value um I don't know why the Indians decided they needed to add him when they had some pretty good minor leagues outfield depth at the time um Hall I don't believe ever makes it to the majors and they would trade away Robert uh Pearson Pearson as part of that fantastic 89 draft class and would go on to pitch 200 games in the majors with 100 starts, um, mostly coming 
late 90s, early 2000s, but for a team that struggled to find pitching, they gave away a pitcher. I mean, literally just gave him away for a, a backup minor league outfielder. So that's kind of the first small trade. Now let's get to our bigger ones as we're kind of getting through this time, and we'll swing back around onto those in a second. Let's talk about Built Bar. So I was tempted to reorder with them recently because they have a pretty cool thing going on right now, at least from my perspective as someone who likes their bars, that uh, if you order a bar while supplies last for like 10 bucks, you can get either one of a, a small box of their peach cobbler or their mango, which I mean, personally, if I could just buy a box of one of those to try, I probably would. It made me want to order just to try and see what peach cobbler was like. So if you've been curious, here's an additional deal. And since that is just a deal that they have on site, it would not uh, conflict at all with our promo code. So you could go on, try a, a box of something that looks good to you, then spend 10 bucks to get like a small box of this, one of those flavors that I both, I think mango and peach cobbler, but I would lean peach cobbler myself, sound amazing. Use that promo code locked on and you'd still get 10% off your whole order over at builtbar.com. Again, I can't speak highly enough of this product. I get to try most of the products we have on site in some form. And this is one that I have gone back and used my own money to buy more of. I think it's a great product. Our other one is just, I think, cool because I love Willie Mays. And that's 24 Life Stories and Lessons from the Say Hey Kid by Willie Mays and John Shea. I was kind of curious. I went over to uh, Goodreads.com. It's a 4.67 on that book. Um, and right now we're talking about the fact that they're just releasing the audiobook, which has a foreword by the great Bob Costas. It has additional information that wasn't in the book, including a conversation with Willie Mays and John Shea, who wrote it with him. I mean, Willie Mays is one of the greats. Like, if you're making an all-time team, Willie Mays is in that outfield. I don't care who you are. If you're not putting him in the outfield, you're doing it wrong. What a chance to learn about one of the great players of all time who, you know, came up in the shadow of, when you look at when he debuted, I mean, I talked about that 1953 was the year before his breakout. It's not that long after the color barrier was broken. Uh, he did not have an easy time. It's a really interesting story, a really interesting player. So make sure to check out 24 Life Stories and Lessons from the Say Hey Kid by Willie Mays and John Shea. Get that wherever you get your audiobooks. So 91, uh, we talked about the Pearson deal, uh, and just say they traded Tim Costo for Reggie Jefferson. Uh, didn't work out for either team. Uh, I will say here's the upside. No matter what the Indians did that year, nothing can be worse than what the Baltimore Orioles did, which was getting Glenn Davis out of the Houston Astros. And they traded for and gave up. I mean, just listen to this. It, it, this is like the equivalent of the uh, Bartolo Colon deal. Steve Finley, Pete Harnish, and Kurt Schilling. Now, no matter how you feel about Kurt Schilling, he was a great player. Harnish was a really good pitcher. Steve Finley was a solid outfielder. I mean, that just makes me go, oh, couldn't we have somehow made that work? Uh, I mean, I know the Indians were trading pitchers and not hitters, and this is a team that needed hitters, but man, uh, you know, Kurt Schilling now, I might not always agree with, uh, especially because he doesn't always like journalists, and I like to fancy myself uh, at least kind of one. But uh, he's undeniably a fantastic pitcher. Pete Harnish, if you've forgotten, was a really good pitcher, too. And Steve Finley was a solid outfielder. Uh, I, this trade helped, <coughs> excuse me, make uh, those uh, strong Houston teams of the 90s. I, I just, when I was going through the data for this, I was like, whoa, I had forgotten about that. 
Um, yeah, what a deal. I mean, in 1991, Harnish would have a 274 ERA over 200 innings pitched. He had the lowest hit rate in the majors, strikeout rate over seven, walk rate a little over three. I mean, yeah, his ERA was a little, you know, didn't quite match up with performance, but he was still good. And he was 91, 92, 93. He was a phenomenal pitcher. Um, 94 and nine uh, was a bit of a struggle came back strong in 95 and then it was up and down for him but he also had some good years in like 98 and uh, 99 with Cincinnati but that was crazy to me so that that's like the bench line benchmark I should say for something like this and the first trade the Indians made was uh, Tom Candiotti and they traded Tom Candiotti who was going to be a free agent and he would go on to get it's kind of also funny now to look back at the time and be like He's in '91. His contract with the Indians was 2.5 million. He would sign with the Dodgers in his uh, before his age 34 season, and he would get a contract that was from '92 to '97 that would pay him between three to 4.4 million dollars. Uh, <laughs> different era, different time, and you know he had a, a late start. Uh, he had first pitched with the Brewers a very little bit in '83 and '84 before his debut with the Indians in '86. And for uh, Candiotti, he was he was good at the start with uh, with the Dodgers, but I think what they signed him for and what he was didn't quite match up. I think they thought they were getting their ace, and they got a, a good mid rotation arm uh, for a knuckleballer. Once he got a little bit more into his thirties, he was not like a two hundred inning guy anymore. When in an era where two hundred innings was kind of expected for one of your starters. But when the Indians traded him, he had the he was leading the uh, the ERA title in the American League. He was one of the big gets at that deadline. Who did the Indians get? Well, they traded Turner Ward with him, who was a fourth outfielder type at best. Denny Bouchard, Glenn Allen Hill, Mark Witten, and Cash. So I talked about one of the guys they acquired being the 25th overall prospect in baseball. That was Mark Witten. He was the second-best Indians prospect behind Eddie Zosky. Uh, next was Steve Carse at 38, and Mike Timlin, who turned a pretty good reliever, was down the line at 69. This is a time, though, when, like, if I told you the top 10 prospects, most of them, I don't think you would know. I mean, you really had to have known baseball and cared at the time. Uh, at least, let's say, the well, of the top five, there's, like, two familiar names. Let's put it that way. I mean, everyone kind of knows Todd Van Poppel if you're around. But Anjouar, let me expand this. Uh, Anjouar Cedeno, Ryan Clasco, everyone knows. Jose Offerman, likely. Roger uh, uh, Salt, who I do remember is a big right-handed pitcher with the Mariners. But it's not a list that inspires. I mean, Mark Lewis is 9, Bernie Williams 11. Uh, stuff like that. So it's it's an interesting list to see. Rich Garces is in the top 20. Different era. Not to, to crap too much on, on BA. That was a hard time to do lists. Uh, and if you go back to 90, because you're just kind of curious about some of the other Blue Jays guys, like where these prospects, Glen Allen Hill in 90 was 49th overall. Derek Bell, by the way, uh, in 90, 75th, and unranked in 91. And in 92, he is... 12th interesting up and down for him but uh yeah the indians got two top 100 prospects and two guys who went on to have solid major league careers uh 
the unfortunate thing is they needed pitching, and they didn't get any pitching in that deal. Uh, Denny Bouchard was not um, a big prospect, and you know I don't know what the thought process necessarily was in adding him, but they, uh, you know, they, for a rental they got two future starters uh, in their outfield. Unfortunately, what happens is Glenn Allen Hill is probably the better of the two, and the Indians ship him out for a aging, uh, well past his prime, Candy Maldonado because they loved to trade young players for aging past their prime guys. Um, you know, we can revisit the, uh, was it the Kevin Setzer deal and some of those other ones where, you know, Eddie Murray, uh, now Murray wasn't traded as a free agent signing and that worked out, but it seemed like after Eddie Murray, they kept trying to find the next and overpaying for them. And that did not go well for the Indians. But in this case, I think you look at the Candiani deal, all things considered, they did pretty well. Uh, I mentioned that they traded Reggie Jefferson for Tim Costco, and that really worked out well, I think, because at least they used Jefferson to help land uh, Omar Vizquel in their other trade. Uh, another trade that has to be commented on is that's the year that they they did a conditional trade of trading away Jesse Orozco. We talked about some of the problems with the bullpen in the 90s. Uh, whatever the conditions were, they weren't met, so the Indians instead essentially gave away Jesse Orozco who from 91 to 98, every season but one, uh, he was a really strong pitcher in the uh, for many teams' bullpens. So that's not ideal. Now let's talk about the just the horrific trade. Uh, this is the one that's super bad. Should we, we'll, we'll end on a positive note about where kind of the whole season gets saved through these trades. Greg Swindell. So we had mentioned how... He was the second overall pick for the Indians. Uh, he was a very strong pitcher for them. And the Indians traded him away. Got Joe Turk, who uh, was a double-A pitcher uh, at that point in time, and not really anyone of note. Uh, he would be out of baseball within two years. He was already 24 in double-A and hadn't really shown too much. So that's he's just he's a throw-in. The main thing here is the Reds traded two pitchers. They gave up two starters. The guy who pitched the third most innings for him and the guy who pitched the fourth most innings for them, Jack Armstrong and Scott Scudder. The issue is they were both terrible. Like, these are not guys you trade for. Like, this is one of those things maybe hindsight, but you don't even have to look at what they did after the trade to know that this wasn't going to work out. In 1990, Jack Armstrong had been an all-star. What had changed for him? His home run rate jumped. His hit rate jumped. Uh, and in the second half of that season, he was nowhere as good as he had been in the first half. He comes back in 1991. At this point, he is 26, and he is awful. Uh, spends it between the majors and the minors, but it is a uh, he is getting hit by everyone and everyone. And I remember hearing he was this big power hitter. And yes, he was big at 6'5", but he didn't particularly miss any bats. Uh, he would pitch for Cleveland in 1992, and that was it. So you're getting the 1992 season and nothing else and he's not good and that's the end of the road for him scott scudder was somehow worse uh he had pitched for the reds 171 and then 100 innings and walked a ton of guys given up a lot of home runs and been very hittable like there was and he didn't strike anyone out like it was the triumvirate of bad but the Indians decided, yeah, we'll roll the dice on the triumvirate of bad. And he was even worse in Cleveland. He had pitched in Cleveland in 92. Uh, he would get 100 innings that year. 
93, he would get uh, two games, and that was the end of his major league career. The Indians would have been better off just getting draft picks, letting Swindell walk in free agency. So that trade happened after the 91 season. So if we go back to like the pre-92 and we look at like a Reds prospect list, uh, Reggie Sanders was the top prospect for that organization at the time. Dan Wilson, who would be a solid catcher, and then uh, Joe Roper, Calvin Reese, and Mo Stanford, who are not names that really ring a bell for me. If you go to 91 and you sort, see, maybe there's someone. It's Chris Hammond might have been the, the interesting pitcher from the group. Uh, in terms of pitching, they traded. Uh, I talked about how they traded Eric Davis to add Tim Belcher to get even more pitching. Uh, I mean, Jose Rio was, was phenomenal for them. And Hammond would... He wasn't necessarily great, but he was definitely better than anything the Indians got in that trade. Uh, he would pitch in 91 and 92 with the Reds, be a back-end starter. Uh, 93 with Florida Marlins was not a particularly strong year, but 94 and 95. 95 was his best major league season, and he did more in basically from 93, 94, 95. He picked up more war than every other player in the deal combined that the Indians got. And he was a lefty, which would have been a nice uh, addition to the Indians. I don't know if he would necessarily would have been a great player, but compared to what they had, he would have been a huge improvement. Uh, that was also the offseason where the Reds broke up that uh, fantastic back end of uh, the bullpen with Charlton, Dibble, and Myers. They would trade Myers away. Uh, for Bip Roberts, who would be fantastic in 92 before he got hurt uh i mean that reds team was was making a lot of moves trying to uh to figure out ways to get over the hump for them they had finished fifth in the nl west that year um they were not particularly grand but after all of their trades they would move up and finish second in the nl west the next year um so it it what they were trying to do worked uh the pieces came together and that corvette team did quite well in 92 uh the interesting thing is uh, Swindell would then, I believe it was after 92, leave. But Belcher, Swindell, and Rio were all fantastic. They still had Tom Browning, but uh, he was certainly feeling his age. And then let's just double-check. So Greg Swindell then leaves. Yes. So after that trade with Cincinnati, um, gets his contract. And again, 28 years old when he hits free agency, so prime years, and he's getting $3.75 million to $4.45 million, which was huge money at the time. Uh, like I found the article where they traded Greg Swindell away, and let's see, what was John Hart's quote? It was difficult for us to trade Greg Swindell. We offered him a three-year deal to become the highest-paid player in Indians history. When the deal was rejected, we began to examine our other options. Um... You know, at this point, they needed pitching, and they made a trade for pitching. They just, there's not a universe where that is a good trade. Uh, I don't know what numbers they looked at or how you evaluate it, but they got two guys who were incredibly inefficient and incredibly bad the year before as the primary return for um, a guy they were getting ready to uh, offer the most money ever in team history. That, that means he had to have been pretty good. So what saves 1991? Well, they, uh, at the winter meetings, would come back and trade uh, Eddie Tobinsey and Willie Blair, who they had acquired earlier in the 1991 season, for Kenny Lofton and another guy. But it's, it, I, you know, I can't remember the other guy, and it doesn't really matter. It's for Kenny Lofton. And that deal uh, is what really sets the table. And luckily from there, they make a few other astute moves. 
the whole training record for John Hart is still incredibly spotty, but you can survive a bad trade of a pair of uh, rental players. In uh, one, again, I, I think the Con- Candiotti deal, while not ideal, was not a terrible deal. The Blue Jays did get comp picks, and one of them turned into Shannon Stewart, so they still kind of won in the end. But uh, for the Indians, uh, the, the Swindell deal was an out-and-out disaster. But uh, luckily for them, less than a month later, they acquired Kenny Lofton in a deal that became a disaster for the Houston Astros, who had earlier in the year made a trade with uh, the Baltimore Orioles. This is a disaster for them. And that's how baseball works. Uh, (laughs) One in every 10 trades is one of those trades you look back and shake your hands in the air and go, what if, or why did we do that? And uh, we talked about the uh, Brandon Phillips deal last week. This time, if you're talking about the Kenny Lofton deal, that is uh, the Indians' equivalent of that. And to loop it all back to talking about that uh, horrible Baltimore deal, if Baltimore doesn't go out and make that deal, and if the Houston Astros don't add Steve Finley, so the what-if scenario is if the Indians had somehow managed to make that deal, you know, A, they probably wouldn't have traded for Lofton, but B, let's say someone else makes that deal with Houston. If Houston doesn't get Steve Finley... Are they then even open to trading Kenny Lofton? Or does that earlier trade in the season, which allowed them to net Steve Finley, open up the door for moving a really young, interesting player like Kenny Lofton? I want to thank everyone again for another strong week. I am done with uh, teaching after this week, so we're going to at least go to four days a week next week, um, start pushing towards five, doing more fun with these historical pieces because I'm enjoying them. I hope others are too. Let me know what you think. And, you know, the draft. June 10th, 11th, and 12th. That's not far away at this point, so I'm going to be heavy into that. I'm trying to avoid the negativity of the back and forth of the baseball disputes right now. So uh, if you're looking for some positivity, that's where this podcast is going to aim until we have some definitive things to talk about and not just uh, what's being put out there right now by by each group. I have been Jeff Ellis. You have been awesome as always. And go Tribe.